Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to spend time, sorry, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow brother, worker and labourer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Decaicus because they've made up for your absence for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now, what do we do with an adolescent church so seduced by her own sense of self-importance that she's in danger of floating off in a hot air balloon powered by the persuasive PR 
of her self-appointed professors. What do we do with a church that has become, if you like, untethered? Paul's strategy has been masterful. Uh, He began in the first four chapters of the letter with an exposition of the cross of Jesus and of his own apostleship and so tied us into the foundation of the Christian faith that should shape all true discipleship, the cross of Christ and the message of the apostles. But the the bulk of the letter finishes in chapter 15, and in chapter 15, he concluded with the resurrection of Jesus, which ensures the future for Christian disciples, the resurrection from the dead. And true discipleship then is focused not on this world, which was the Corinthian problem, but on the next. And and you know, that's a masterstroke. The cross at the start, the resurrection at the end. The foundation at the beginning, the focus on the future. And all decisions and lifestyle choices made in light of these fundamental realities. But then in the middle of this letter, three major sections, chapters five through seven, holiness. You're not your own, you've been bought at a price, glorify God with your body. Chapter eight through 10, self-sacrifice, decisions made for the sake of the advance of the gospel. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. And then chapters 11 through 14, love, whatever, gifts the Lord may have given, whatever I'm able to do, I use in love for the benefit of Christian believers, the building up of the church. And so throughout our studies over the last six months now, God has been teaching us what it looks like for the Christian gospel to be established in a heathen land. There was a really very helpful quote we came across early on from Charles Hodge this, shows us, this letter shows us how the gospel works in a heathen land, previously unchristianized. It's like leaven hidden in a measure of meal. It's long before the whole mass is leavened. It, it doesn't transform the character of men or the state of society in a moment. It keeps up a continual conflict with evil. I, I received a note from Joelle Kenny, uh, one of our mission partners, I'll mention her later, in Cambodia, who said, what an encouragement it is to be in a letter which shows us that it's messy as we see the Christian gospel established in a previously unchristianized land. And in London today, now with very few vestiges of the Christian faith left, what will it look like to see churches established? Oh, messy, messy. But the cross the foundation, the resurrection, and the resurrection of the future, holiness, self-sacrifice, love. It's worth noting just one last time, I mentioned it last week, personally I don't think there is much evidence in the main bulk of the letter that the Corinthians have been overly influenced by their primary school philosophy lessons. A lot of people over the last 30 years have encouraged us to think that the Corinthians were dualists with uh, a big sense that the material was not spiritual and it's the spiritual only that mattered. It came out of Greek philosophy. I'm not sure there is much evidence of that and I have to say I think it does leave us finding the Corinthian situation altogether too mysterious. Actually the Corinthians were just worldly. 
They haven't realized what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, who we are. That our life is now shaped by God's values, the cross. That our life is now shaped by the future, not this world, the resurrection. And that holiness, self-sacrifice, and love are the true benchmarks of any Christianity that is founded on the cross and the resurrection. So what is the tactic when a church has become untethered of tying it in? Well, today's passage brings the letter to a conclusion, and I, I think you'll have to agree that it is masterful. There's one verse which really sits at the kind of key application for us, and it's there in verse 13. I want to take that up front. Did you notice verse 13? Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you, you do be done in love. Well, 16th of October, 1555, two men stood bound to stakes with bundles of gorse and brushwood around them in Oxford's Broad Street. Hugh Latimer, age 70, former Bishop of Worcester, and Nicholas Ridley, former Bishop of London, were about to be burnt at the stake. And it is reported that Latimer turned to Ridley and said this, be of good cheer, Master Ridley, play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I trust by God's grace shall never be put out. Well, and they did, or God did. So we're down at the uh, summer school at the moment with a lot of our gospel partners from the city work around us. And one evening, David Cook, who's speaking, he's gonna be here for the next four weeks, so we've got a great treat in store. David Cook said, just as an aside, you know, when he's teaching young preachers, he says every sermon should have a communicable moment. You know, a moment where you really kind of uh, touch base with a congregation and, uh, and communicate. And next morning, early in the morning, I was heading past a little area, some of you will know, called the Orangery, and there was David Cook sitting at a table. He said, I was reading the passage you're speaking on, he's Australian, by the way, uh, this, this Sunday, 1 Corinthians 16, and there's a great communicable moment in that chapter. And I didn't even need to ask him. He wasn't going to tell me. He just wanted me to go and look for it. Like, it was obvious. Verse 13. Be watchful, on your guard, vigilant against the world, the flesh, and the devil, alert to the evil one. Stand firm in the faith, a military metaphor, hold your ground, dig in, don't budge, think of the Ukrainians, stand firm. Act like men, not that women are not courageous, uh, that's an absurd idea, but it was the blokes who went out to war predominantly in those days, so act like a soldier. Be men of courage, women of courage. Be strong. And let everything you do be done in love. We'll come back to that. That is what the appeal for us is. But you know, verse 13, this communicable moment, comes in the middle of Paul's closing words, and chapter 16 sees Paul now tying the Corinthian church in, in the tightest possible way, to the worldwide church of God's eternal congregation. Uh, what do you do then? 
for a new movement, an adolescent church that's in danger of cutting the ropes and floating off in a balloon of its own self-importance and self-styled discipleship. Yeah, the cross, the resurrection, the apostle, holiness, selfless sacrifice, love, and then the body of Christians across the globe. Play your part, take your place, stay connected. And may I say, I think this is a brilliant word for us at St. Helens, uh, and we should go away from here asking ourselves both as church family and as individuals, to what extent are we playing our part in the worldwide Church of Christ? Uh, To what extent are we taking our place in authentic discipleship and the advance of the gospel? Are we connected with all the glorious benefits of loving relationships with Christians far and wide? So play your part. Verses one through nine. Now concerning, this is a response to the letter the Corinthians had written to Paul. Uh, The collection of the saints, it's brilliant to take that as the penultimate issue Paul addresses. The collection refers to a money that is taken up from the non-Jewish Gentile churches scattered around the non-Jewish parts of the Mediterranean. And the purpose of the money was to provide material relief because of a famine that was going on in Israel. So the money was being collected from all the different churches gathered together to be taken to Jerusalem to provide for the needs of the Jewish saints. This then is not simply practical, but also theological. Because the Christian gospel links every believer now into the worldwide work of God, the work of Christ. And so by showing that the church in Corinth were part of this, then when the money came to the Jews in Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem, now Jewish Christians, would say the Christian gospel is actually having its effect. All the promises of God to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all nations, are coming to effect. The Jews and the Gentiles are being brought together through the gospel because these Christians are genuine Christians who are concerned for the material need of their brothers and sisters in the church in Jerusalem, both practical and theological. It makes me delighted that part of the 2030 vision that we have here at St. Helens is to engage more actively with the needs of the persecuted church worldwide. I mean, some people in the congregation are very involved in that work, but one of the things we want to set ourselves as a church is to be connected by helping the practical needs of the worldwide church of Christ. You'll notice that verse two and three show us how we should arrange our giving. Just look at it closely on the first day of the week, that it's it's to be regular. Each of you, that's every single person, is to put something aside, it's to be planned and store it up, it's to be kept as he or she may prosper, it's proportionate. So there's no kind of tithe here or anything like that. It's just as you may prosper, set something aside. It it sounds remarkably like our own treasurer, doesn't it, when he's talking to us about our giving. Of course, there were no bank accounts in a cash economy, so it was done week by week by week. But if Paul were writing today, he would say, make sure you have a standing order 
week by week, as you may prosper. Not everybody expected to be doing exactly the same, but uh, as you may prosper. And then you'll see verse three, that it's regulated, I mean, as it should be, there doesn't want to be a scandal for the gospel. I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. It's a great little model benchmark for Christian giving there, isn't it? Discipline, integrity, planning, consistency, proportionality. But you can see from verses five through nine that it's not only to alleviate material need. Just look at verse five. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. I intend to pass through Macedonia and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. I don't want to see you just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. I'll stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work is open to me and there are many adversaries. So just in the letter, with the letter to the Romans and Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, it's not just that the money is going to material need, it's that he's wanting support for the advance of the gospel. Both things with our resources used to help the worldwide church of Christ. Now this is a brilliant strategy, it seems to me, to an errant church. He's laid out his theology, the cross, the resurrection. He's addressed their behavior, godliness, selfless sacrifice, love. Now are you tied in? In any sense are you tied in to the needs of the saints? To the global advance of the gospel? Now, in a sense, if you're part of the church at St. Helens, you can't help but be tied in because we have a UK mission fund. We pray for uh, the advance of the gospel across the United Kingdom, but every single one of our prayer suppers, you know, we're involved in gospel partnerships and renew and we have missionaries. But, But what about us? How invested are we? Play your part. Uh, There's a piece here too, I think, about the contrast between pagan philanthropy that you see in your big city corporations and so forth and Christian giving. But you can ask me about that in the question time. Paul doesn't stop there. Just as in chapters one to four, he outlines his own ministry and encourages them to recognize it as authentic. Here in verses 10 through 18, what Paul does is he lists five gospel workers and encourages the Corinthians to line up with them. So you see, it'd be very easy, wouldn't it, to take verse 13, our communicable moment, and kind of just treat it in isolation, but it's actually tied in to these final, what, 24 verses of the letter and particularly tied in to taking our place alongside true gospel workers. Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus Forus, I think is his full name, Fortunatus, I guess he was called lucky by his mates, and Achaeus, or Achaeus, who um, obviously came from Achaea, uh, it'd be like calling somebody Tex. 
But do you see what Paul says as, as we read through this? Be subject to such men. Give recognition to such men. Don't despise such people. Make sure that such people are able to operate fearlessly among you. Help such people on their way. Some of them are from within Corinth and some of them from without Corinth. Welcome them and embrace their ministry because they're authentic gospel workers and as authentic gospel workers, they should have a place amongst you. In other words, stay connected to the global church of Christ. It's worth just looking at why each one is authentic. Timothy is authentic. See that you put him at ease. That is, make sure he can operate fearlessly amongst you, not because Timothy was in any sense timid, but that he should be able to have free reign to do gospel work amongst you. But why should Timothy have free reign to do gospel work amongst you? Because he's doing the work of the Lord as I am. Timothy is as close to the Apostle Paul as you can get. They're doing the same work. So make sure that such people are at ease amongst you. They can operate freely amongst you. And verse 11, don't despise such people. Help them on their way in peace that they may return and so forth. And then why should they recognize Stephanus? Well, verse 15, you know the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and every fellow worker and laborer. And then the end of verse 18, give recognition to such men. So make sure they can operate fearlessly. Don't despise them. Help them on their way. Be subject to them and give recognition to such people. Again, it's a brilliant tactic, isn't it? Make sure you're connected through your wallet to the worldwide church of Christ, but make sure you're connected in the teaching that you accept in the congregation to true gospel people like Timothy and Stephanus. And do you notice the qualifications? It's not that they've got a PhD or uh, that they've you know, had hands laid on them and they've got the title, the most venerable. It's not that they hold a congregation of a thousand people or anything like that, or, or they have their own website and they're, they're highly popular celebrity preachers, which is the kind of thing that the Corinthians absolutely loved because they were so worldly worldly qualifications from the uh, seminary and worldly qualifications, numbers, worldly qualifications, budget, but it's that they're devoted to the service of the saints. I think this is quite important to us, isn't it, where actually you can plug into somebody's teaching. There's nothing wrong with listening to sermons online and that sort of thing, and often they can be enormously helpful. But the question we should always be asking and the people we should be prepared to be subject to in the local congregation, which is where the action is, is those who have a track record, a proven track record of devotion to the service of the saints. It's actually 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, isn't it? Selfless sacrifice. And those who you can't fit a cigarette paper between their teaching and the teaching of the apostle, like Timothy, and we're to make sure that when a David Cook comes into town 
and we're able, we benefit and give him free reign amongst us. Benefit from the ministry because he is such a one. And in that context, be watchful, that is be alert, have your eyes open to the enemy. You're in a battle, stand firm, dig in, don't be moved, hold your ground. Act like men, not that women are not courageous. Some of the most courageous women I know are part of the congregation at St. Helens, fearless. But that we're in a battle, this is warfare, and be strong. Be of good cheer, Master Ridley. Play the man. By God's grace, we shall this day light such a flame that will never be put out. One of the highlights of the city summer school is the interviews. We do lots and lots of interviews with uh, people. I see some of you smiling. I mean, this last week we had some fantastic interviews of individuals who are just engaged in Christian work in their workplace or at the school gate. Uh, it's been absolutely wonderful. One of my highlights was a young lady who's in a big firm uh, where they're not positive about open proclamation of the gospel. And the first question she was asked, she'd organized an event where she'd invited her whole team to come along and hear the Christian gospel. And the first question she was asked was, why were you so unwilling to do this? And she told us about her character and her, her temperament and her, her, her not wanting to be in the limelight and to keep her head below the parapet and yet how she was convicted that she must do it. She did it. And you think, yeah, act like a soldier. You've certainly done that in your workplace. And the benefits of people who then came out of the woodwork in order to hear the Christian message. Do try, if you've not read it, uh, somebody else, incidentally, who's just sitting here, um, before us, talking about the need for prayer in the workplace, in a battle, be watchful, in your school, in the staff room, on the ward. Uh, if you've not done it, do make sure you read Joel Kenny's little book, The Life I Now Live. Uh, it's a big, great beach read if you're going to the beach over the summer, in between trying to cool off have a read of The Life I Now Live. There are about 40 copies there on the bookstore, and they're not expensive at all. And then finally, there in verse 19 through 23, uh, do you notice the number of times greetings? The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house. It gives us a sense, doesn't it, of the kind of size and uh, demography of one of the churches in the first century, the church that met in their house, send you hearty greetings. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I think that's a cultural thing. I don't think we necessarily need feel we have to do that after church today, but it's an expression of loving Christian family friendship. And then Paul's own greeting if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. That's been key, hasn't it? Love, if you've drifted from the love from the Lord, you've drifted from Christ and you face God's judgment. Our Lord come, Paul is longing for the return of Christ. Meanwhile, the grace of the Lord be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. We're part of one glorious family of Christ. Now, this has been such Brilliant tactics on the part of Paul. Yeah, the cross. Authentic apostolic message, the apostle Paul. The resurrection, 
1 through 4, 15. Holiness, 5 through 7. Self-sacrifice for the sake of the lost, 8 through 10. Love, 11 through 14. And now, are you connected? Are you actually connected? What do you say to a church so seduced by her own sense of self-importance that she's in danger of floating off in a balloon powered by the persuasive PR of her self-appointed professors? <laughs> what do you do for a church like that? It's kind of got the wrong end of the stick when it comes to the Christian gospel and, and has kind of invented its own gospel and now thinks they know better than everybody else and it, effectively they're just very worldly. What do you do to a church that feels it's a cut above the rest? Uh, what do you do to a church where there are factions with different groups seeking to big up their own celebrity hero that has developed eccentric practices around various issues? What do you do to such a church? Oh, you want them woven in to the fabric of the worldwide church of Christ. And so, play your part. D does your wallet suggest that you're playing your part? Take your place, stand alongside Timothy, Stephanus, Fortunatus. Stay connected. We're going to pause there. Let's pray together. We thank you, our Father, for the love that we have encountered, that you've shown us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the extraordinary blessings of knowing the love of Jesus and of being part of the loving people of the Lord Jesus. We pray that you'd help each one of us uh, wherever we find ourselves in this coming week to be men and women of courage, to stand firm, and in everything to act in love. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll start with some questions. These are some questions on resurrection and um, some clarification questions from the last few weeks. Could you clarify, William, the timing of judgment? This person asks, is it once when I die and then again when there's a resurrection? Could we just Thank you very that? much. So at the res I don't think this is particularly what Paul is concerned with in this letter. Okay, I think what he's concerned about is the resurrection of believers on the last day. Um, so I don't think he's unpacking a theology um, uh, but the Bible's teaching is that on death, my soul does go, if I'm Christian, to be with the Lord Jesus in paradise. Think of the thief on the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. Think of the Apostle Paul. Um, I want to depart and be with the Lord, which is better by far. Your mortal remains, if you're Christian, are asleep. Remember the guy over there? Um, what's his name? Francis Bancroft. He's asleep in there. 
Uh, and at the resurrection from the dead, remember the Lord Jesus says the time is coming with those who are dead and in their graves will come out to judgment. At the resurrection of the dead, Francis Bancroft will come out. The unbeliever soul goes to be in uh, Hades, Sheol, that's the kind of language that the Bible uses, which is a waiting chamber for final judgment. So the believer is safe with the Lord, the unbeliever is in Hades awaiting judgment. So in a sense, that the verdict is already there. But on the resurrection, that is the great day of the resurrection from the grave, when Christ returns with a trumpet sound, the believer, their body will rise and the judgment in effect has already happened, but this is the final day of judgment. And because they're in Christ, they won't face his condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Chapter five, verse 24 of John's gospel is a profoundly last day judgment verse. Um, the unbeliever whose soul is in Hades, will body will arise and there will be, but Paul isn't unpacking that. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, what he's unpacking is, uh, is purely the believer's part in that. And when we rise physically from the grave, our bodies will be transformed into something so unimaginably splendid that they are as different from our current body as an acorn is to an oak tree, and yet connected. And as I said last week, I think it's a mistake to take the physical resurrection body of Jesus as our benchmark for that, because at his resurrection, Jesus is still in his physical resurrection body. And I think the transfiguration and Re Revelation chapter one and so forth speak of a far, far, far more glorious physical reality for the believer than simply a kind of earthly body. Um, anyway, that's, that's for further thought. No, thank you. Well, someone, I mean, connected to this, someone asks, does the... Does this mean that it makes a difference to whether we should be buried, cremated, these kind of things? No, I, I, I think if the Lord in creation, and I think that is implicit in what is, a lot of what is said in those central verses of 1 Corinthians 15, if the Lord in creation is able to create Adam from the dust, however you might like to explain that, that's the language uses, used, I think he will perfectly be able, with a trumpet sound, with a voice of command, to reconstitute whatever physical reality you're to have. And the whole point is that the seed goes into the ground and perishes. I've been digging up some potatoes that I planted. You know, and you're not gonna, you know, they've got all this beautiful stuff on top and all the rest of it. You know, you don't take that, it's perished. Um, so your body may be gas and air, you know, all the rest of it and ashes, or it may just have rotted away uh, underground, but you will be given something as, as glorious as the oak tree is in comparison to the acorn. How's that? That's great. I think we have much great. too small a view of our resurrection future, by the way. That's what one of the things 1 Corinthians 15 has convinced me of. You think of the transfiguration, his face shone like, uh, like, like white, like linen that nobody could ever bleach it like that. And uh, there was a splendor and a, uh, about the risen Lord, the ascended Lord Jesus and the ascension reality of Christ is, is you know, so magnificent in comparison to the earthly form of somebody in Adam. Yeah. Thank you. And I think what you're saying here will help with this next question. 
there may be more to add. Someone saying, what if I just feel that I doubt that Jesus will return, that that's a doubt that comes back, and um, what can I do about that? Thank you, go back to the scriptures, go back to the scriptures, go back to the scriptures. So it's the word of God and his promises that are the counter to doubt, always. And 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 18, 19, 20, that's the place to be. Immerse yourself in it. And sometimes, you know, you think, well, I immerse myself in it, and it's just like kind of water splashing off a, a, the, 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 the windscreen. Well, and sometimes by temperament, you know, we're the kind of person who just gets really stuck from time to time. We're just like that by temperament, or we go through a particularly difficult phase. Stay close, stay close to those who are trusting and stay close to the word of God. Keep coming. Don't give up. Some people have spoken to me in the past of, you know, every day just getting to church every Sunday is such a battle. But they're here. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, it, that passes sometimes and you move into a, a different phase where, you know, the light shines again. So, mm. yeah, thank you. Thank you. Someone asked the question that you uh, teed us up for about the difference between Christian giving or pagan oh. philanthropy. I can't say it. Philanthropy. I'll just, uh, you know what the question is. Pagan <laughs> philanthropy. Let me just find this. I should have been more uh, switched on and had it ready here. Uh, what I did was I went online and looked at a number of companies giving, and, you know, I want, don't want to under, undermine the wonderful work that some people uh, you know, do in their corporate uh, uh, departments and so forth for giving. But so much of it was just really self-serving. Um, so, you know, what are you in? Social responsibility and what's that other thing called, uh, James? ESG. ESG, environmental and social governance. governance. Yeah, that's right. But so much of it is just self-serving and box-ticking and it's not actually selfless. And so you read things like, um, you know, oh, by involving, being involved in this, it will really help your team morale. But that's just self-serving. Or it will shine a good light on your own brand. And you think, yeah, but that's totally different. That is shining a light on your own brand is exactly what the Lord Jesus warns us about in Matthew's gospel, where he says, don't let your giving be seen by others, lest you receive your reward here on earth. It's just thoroughly, thoroughly pagan. Pagan, that's what a lot of your corporate giving is about. It's shining a light on your own brand and looking good, and you know that. I've talked to so many people in the city involved in this, so we've got to tick this box, we've got to tick that box, so everybody looks at us and thinks we're good. And that sort of um, hypocritical, um, grandstanding is profoundly unchristian. I mean, good things can happen through it. I mean, the Lord can take and use even our most twisted of motives. But Christian giving is selfless and sacrificial, and nobody knows about it. And you're tied into the worldwide church, and you're, you're giving as you may prosper, and, and you keep it quiet. You don't tell anybody, and it's between you and the Lord, and we don't keep a record. I know nothing of anybody's giving practices in St. Helens other than my own. Just, there's a big wall, and uh, nor should I. Brilliant. Is, um, that, is that enough on that? I think that's great. I think that's great. And we can keep chatting about it. So come on, come back with further questions afterwards, and there's lots to discuss. Um, some questions about being connected now from um, 
the passage today. Someone saying, well, how can you recognize when someone's devoted to the service of the saints? And just when we're saying saints here, we're talking about Christians. So just another question wanting that clarification. We're talking about Christians. Thank you so much. That's really helpful. How was Stephanus? Um, you know, if you looked at his life, would he live for himself or would he lived for the church of Christ? I mean, I don't think it means that, you know, he, he wasn't every now and then out a bit of a breather, um, says William rather self-interestedly. But, uh, but, you know, was he devoted to the service of the saints or is he actually seeking to promote his own brand? And I think that's, and the, the point here is you are subject to such as these. That is, the people you know in your own local congregation. Timothy's just flying through and then pushing off again. And that tended to be Timothy's model. He is what I like to call an apostolic delegate. That is, he went in, got a church established, and then pushed off again. Um, so he didn't have necessarily that kind of long-standing. The people you're going to have long-standing relationships are those who are amongst us. And you know whether individuals are devoted to the service of the saints or they're just feathering their own reputation, trying to promote their own brand. And it's really interesting, David Garland, who I think is the most helpful commentator around at the moment on 1 Corinthians, contrasts um, benefactors in the first century with this and says so much of the, 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 the giving in the first century and also the kind of, um, if you like to use the word, it's not the wrong word, but the ministry of people was about gaining kudos for myself. Well, is that, is that, the, is that Phil? You know, is that, is that uh, your small group leader, your small group leader? Or are they about the service of the saints? It's a really good... Johnny Jukes, when he was here leading the team back in the dark ages, he used every now and then to say, who are we serving? Who are you serving? Yourself or the Lord Jesus? And this, of course, is tied right into 1 Corinthians. Chapters 1 through 4, the cross. Chapters 5 through 7, holiness. Chapters 8 through 10, selfless sacrifice, sub subjecting my own concerns for the service of the saints. Um, am I allowed a minute more on this? Please do. There's yeah. somebody sitting in front of me here today. He won't uh, remember this probably. But you know we used to do um, evenings where we laid on kind of a posh dinner and, and we're much more kind of... Um, not quite so posh these days in, in the kind of stuff we do evangelism. We used to have this posh dinner, tablecloths and all the rest of it. And um, people would bring their friends. And one evening, um, there was a guy there uh, and he, he was wearing his city suit. He'd just come out of his law firm. And it, all the students were there. And it was just priceless because there he was clearing up the plates and so forth at the students' tables. And I said to him uh, later in the week, oh, it's just so wonderful to see you serving in your city suit as one of the big shot lawyers here. Um, a group of grungy, I mean, you can only use the word grungy, I'm afraid, grungy students, you know, and to going around and then doing the washing up. And uh, he said, um, I said, I'm going to use that as an illustration, you know. And he said, make sure you tell them that it's not just one night a year. Not meaning, no, make sure you tell them that I don't just do it for one night a year, but this sort of selfless service is a whole life of devotion to Christian brothers and sisters. Uh, so that's, that's, I think, and we can see that, can't we? Are they serving themselves, their own reputation, their own comfort? Who are they serving? Super. 
One, one last question to finish with. There's lots of good questions here. We've got through a good number, but there are still some unconscious we haven't got to. So please do come and talk to William, talk to me, or talk to those around you. And if it is a particular question, don't just leave it unanswered. Do come and chat. We'd love to talk about it. But as we close, someone asked, well, just how can we be active in the work of the Lord and just keep watchful as a church at St. Helens not to have worldly pride like the Corinthians? Well, I think I want to take us back to the word of God again and keep holding up the plumb line of God's word against um, our, own, our own lives. And I think I want to say where, and we're talking individuals here, I've been talking mainly about the corporate as a church, but you know, where am I in terms of, in some way, um, playing my part in the needs of the worldwide church? Where am I in that, financially? Uh, where am I in standing alongside people like Stephanus and uh, Timothy? I mean, I was just talking a few minutes ago to somebody who is a parent at a school where my daughter is. She has set up a kind of school mission and runs the Christian Union and is very public in her Christian faith in a school which is fairly hostile to the Christian gospel. This parent has stood right alongside her. Now, I think I want to say, who are you standing alongside? Uh, maybe you're the sort of person who will set something up in your company or your hospital or your school. Maybe you're the one who sets it up. Maybe you're the one who stands alongside. Who, who are you actually standing alongside openly, courageously, backing, supporting? Um, so I, I think those are the kind of questions. I can't answer that. There are, there are probably 350 people here. I can't answer it for you because I don't know your situation. But not, you're not just a little individual, isolated little me. You're part of the Worldwide Church of Christ and who are you standing alongside? Yeah. Thank you. Is that it? That is great. Thanks very Thank much. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Phil.